as we get started. Let me, as we get started, let me, Sunday morning at our men's retreat, um, it's going to be outstanding. Some of the most gifted and challenging teachers of men in our church are going to be leading us, and uh, the food will be really good and really unhealthy, and... <laughs> As we get started, let me, as we get started, let me, it's a great opportunity uh, to build some strong friendships with other men in the church, and uh, God does some good work in our souls while we're there. So if you could use those two things, come, come join us. It would really be great. Sign up is in the lobby. Obviously, this is your last chance to sign up, so uh, on your way out, don't forget, and um, you might want to stop by and check and see if your wife has already signed you up, because she, she may have done that for you just as an act of love. So uh, please, please join us. Very much like to do that. Pray with me, please. Father, um, we're more needy than we know, and sometimes we think we're okay, and we need you so desperately, and Give us ears to hear your care and love for us now through your word, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are learning how to be devoted to three great loves this year. Love for God, love for the church, and love for neighbor. We're watching how Jesus loves neighbors a little bit these days in different stories in the New Testament. Now look at one in Matthew 19 today. If you'd like to open your Bibles there, that's where we'll be most of the morning, and Someone has likened this encounter, we call it the, the encounter with the rich young ruler. You might be familiar with it. Some people have described it as an, an intervention where Jesus steps into this young man's life, speaks to him about an addiction that is dragging him away from God, and unbelievably in this story, the intervention fails. Okay. The young man goes away sad after Jesus lovingly invites him to follow him. And uh, it's troubling when the intervention fails. It's troubling when the intervention fails and Jesus is doing it. What's that about? I thought Jesus would be a better counselor than that, you know? Um, but this one does not work out as we had hoped. And so it can be a very confusing story to read as a result of that. So we want to slow down and think kind of deeply about it this morning. And I'd like to begin by reading it to you. It's Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. It goes like this. Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, um, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. So there you have it. Sure enough, the intervention fails, right? And you wonder, how could that happen when Jesus is the one doing the intervention? And why, if you're Matthew and you're recording stories from Jesus' life, why this one? Why the one that doesn't work? And I was wrestling with that again this week, and I was, I was helped to realize how this story is told in the Bible. It's told three times, three different times. Matthew tells it. We're going to look at that. Mark tells it, and Luke tells it. So they all tell the same story with a few little extra details from each of them. But every time they tell it, all three of them, it's part of three stories, three teachings, really, back to back to back, and this one is in the middle. Um, they always tell it the same way. What comes before and what comes after is the same. And our story, which we call the rich young ruler, comes from a gleaning of who this man is in, in those three tellings. All of them tell us he's wealthy. Mark tells us that he's a ruler. And Matthew tells us that he's young. And what we find is this story is sandwiched between some very upside-down kind of reversals. Things happen in a way we would not expect them to happen on either side of it. And this one is part of that threefold telling of the stories. And they're about the kingdom of heaven. You get, you get the sense that the kingdom of God doesn't operate like we expect it to. Because the king is not like us. He's better than us. He's more merciful than we are. He runs things differently than we would. And so these three stories, back to back to pretty much back, are surprising reversals. And the first of those stories, really short, happens in Matthew 19, starting in verse 13, just a couple verses before our story. It's a story about children, and it goes this way. Children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And so the imagery here is that the children are received by Jesus, and Jesus uses that as a, as a way to show that children are welcomed in the kingdom. And it's not really children per se that are in view here, but those of us who are childlike in our in our faith, um, commentator Dale Bruner says, according to Jesus, the dependent, the unable, the helpless, the passive, the weak are the real citizens of the heavenly kingdom. These are different people from those whom we usually allow to enter our kingdoms or clubs. He says, those whom instinct disqualifies, Jesus qualifies. And so the children get in, the childlike get in. The disciples are surprised by this. They didn't even want to let the children near Jesus, right? And this is the first of the three teachings, stories that are told back to back. Now, in the very next few verses, right after this, we go to that story of the rich young ruler. It starts with the man's question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And it ended, it ends with his sorrowful 
departure because he has many possessions. Um, in between, Jesus answers his first question with an interesting question. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? This is verse 17. There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And this is a little bit puzzling. And if I paraphrase it for you, it sounds like really bad advice. So someone comes to you and says, hey, how can I get eternal life? And you say, do good works. That's not how we tell people to get eternal life, right? We tell them you can't do enough good works. But Jesus here responds by telling him to obey the commandments. That's how he gets life. And I think what Jesus may be doing in the telling of that instruction to keep the commandments, he's saying the same thing we would. He's showing the man as he lays out the commandments that we simply cannot fully keep, that he cannot be good enough to enter the kingdom of his own good deeds. Um, it's not bad advice after all. It's essential advice, it seems like. And it really does seem to reveal this young man, he has a confidence in himself, what he can do to have eternal life. And if confidence is in yourself, it's really no confidence at all before God. And you see this guy, even though that's where his confidence lies, he's not confident in it. He asks Jesus three questions. He says, how can I have eternal life? Because he seems to know he really doesn't have it. And then he says, well, which commandments do I need to keep? But you have a sense that he knows he really can't keep them all. And then at the end, he says, what do I lack? He knows he lacks something. Again, confidence in himself is really no confidence at all for this young man or, or for any of us. So in verse 21, Jesus says to him, after this conversation about keeping commandments and what do I lack, Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And what has happened here, it seems to me, is that Jesus has put his finger on something very precious to this young man. He has poked something that is his great treasure. It's his trust. Now, it's worth pointing out here and, and others have pointed this out. They say that when Jesus tells this rich man to give the poor his money, he shows that absolute poverty is not the goal here. Okay, Jesus is not teaching this man or us that we are to live in abject poverty. They say if it were, giving the poor money would be hurting them. Right? So it doesn't make any sense. That's not the goal here. Instead, Jesus is asking this man to transfer his trust from his wealth to Christ, okay. from what he has to Jesus. He's asking him to surrender the one trust and follow the other to change treasures. Okay. And this man will not. He goes away sorrowful. And it's important to note that even though he still has his wealth, he has all of it, 
he goes away sorrowful with his wealth. Why the sorrow? Perhaps it's not so much that he still has his wealth as much as that his wealth still has him. One of my favorite Bible teachers, a guy named Jake Mason, put it, put it this way when he taught this passage to us a few years ago. And he quoted Psalm 16, verse 4, and says that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And then Jake says, this man's sorrows have multiplied because he chose to run after the God of his money. Okay. And that, I think is why this inter- intervention fails in this man's life, at least at this point. Matt Woodley says, just like a raging drunk won't give up his beer or vodka, or a sex addict won't give up strip clubs or emotional affairs, or a workaholic keeps fleeing into her job, this guy won't give up his disordered love for money and possessions. And money, you know, we don't want to miss the fact that money can be, have a terrifying effect on our souls. The Apostle Paul warns us, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And the terrifying thing to me is the way Matthew describes this man's wealth. He doesn't really describe him as as having riches. It just says he has many possessions, is what what he literally says. He has many things. He has lots of stuff. Do you know that in the average American home, there are 300,000 items? 300,000. We have more shopping malls than high schools. Women will spend, it's estimated, more than eight years of their lives shopping. Eight years. This could be us. This, this man, he could be us, where all of his things cause him not to follow Jesus. Again, listen to the, some of the scholars who are writing about this. The, one says, the man must have underestimated or hardly heard Jesus' invitation to be with him. The word sell rang so loudly in his ears that it drowned out the word me in follow me. Another one says, Jesus understood our fundamental problem. We can't save or redeem ourselves. That's why this passage begins with Jesus' call to become a child. Children don't assume that they're self-sufficient. Children know that some things are impossible for them, but not for their parents. And children aren't shy about asking for help. So ask, Jesus says. But this man won't ask. He refuses to be like a child. Verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So again, the intervention failed. This rich man doesn't get in. And this is so contrary to the prevailing thinking in Jesus' day about wealth and God's blessing. Um, 
The rich were considered to be blessed by God, and their wealth often was seen as a, an expression of that blessing. Come to think of it, you could turn on your TV right now and hear that same message taught. Right? To say that this rich young ruler doesn't get in would be like saying it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a seminary professor to enter the kingdom of God. Whoa, that's kind of shocking. We assume seminary professors are blessed by God. They know God, right? That would mess with our categories. When Jesus says that about the rich man, it has the same effect on them. Whoa, if they can't get in, if this guy can't get in, who gets in? Didn't see that coming. The rich don't get in. The children get in, and the rich don't. This is all upside down to them. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's impossible without God. Nobody warrants salvation. Nobody deserves it. Nobody merits it. Nobody can earn it. Nobody can pull it off. Nobody. Not the blessed rich, not even seminary professors or long-tenured pastors. Nobody can. It's in God's hands. We all need His grace. We all need His grace. No one is good enough. Well, Peter's head is spinning, and so he says to Jesus in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Okay. Peter wants to know, will we get in the kingdom? After all the sacrifices we've made to follow you, and, and if we get in, will it be worth it? And Jesus says back to his question, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus' answer to Peter is that it's worth it. Okay? It's way more than worth it. He says to his disciples, to the 12 disciples, that you're going to get to rule over God's people on, on 12 thrones. And then he goes on and says a part that for sure expli explicitly includes you and me. He says anyone who's lost his house or land or even a loved one will get a hundred times as much plus eternal life. And when Mark tells that teaching, he adds the phrase, in this life, a hundred times as much in this life, a hundred times more. And I can see that some of you are troubled by this because you think this is not fair. God is being way too generous with us. We're getting a hundred times more than we deserve, and you're upset because God's not being fair. Aren't you really upset that he's going to give you a hundred times what you deserve? It's funny how that works, isn't it? We're never upset when God is too generous with us. 
We don't mind that he's not fair in that regard. But the Father, Jesus here is promising that the Father will be more generous, far more generous, a hundred times more generous than we deserve. Way more generous. In this present age, Mark tells us. How can that be? So is this one of those get-rich-quick schemes where you give a bunch of money and you get like a whole bunch more back? Like, it's kind of like a Christian lottery, right? Or that whole thing where if you're a pastor, you get your congregation and your TV audience to chip in money to buy you a $65 million jet, right? One of our TV preachers tried that recently. Um, and his... His ministry says, we wholeheartedly reject the notion that the ministry's $65 million airplane project is an imposition on our community or that it somehow takes advantage of our people. We plan to acquire a Gulfstream G650 because it's the best, and that's a reflection of the level of excellence at which this organization chooses to operate. Somehow I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. When he says a hundredfold in this life, um, that's a puzzling statement. But I, I was thinking about it. You know, I've ex- I have experienced that. And it's not what I drive or what I fly in. But, you know, I've sat in a thatch roof hut with dirt floors in Africa. And I have worshipped on the rooftop in the cities of India and I have been in homes and sat on wooden stools in the hospitality of brothers and sisters in China. I have gone to parties in Lewisburg that have been off the charts. I have, I have been entertained in, in the home in Cimarron and in Staffordshire in unbelievably generous ways a hundred times anything I've ever sacrificed. Okay. I've sat in the homes of my fellow believers brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, and I have tasted what Jesus is offering here a hundred times. Whatever you give up, what you get back in this community, it's a hundred times better. That's, that's how sweet our friendships are supposed to be and can be. It's worth it, Jesus says. Even if it costs you your house, even if it costs you your lifestyle, even if it costs you the next rung up the ladder, and there's a good chance that it might. But he says some troubling things there. What if it costs you a father or a mother, a brother or a sister or, or a child? And I think of our young families who are living in China where access to medical treatment um, is not what it is here. And when they travel for half a day out into these villages, sometimes with their children, there's no access to care. What if something happens? What if they lose a child? Unbelievably, Jesus seems to have exactly this kind of cost in mind when he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus would say here, no matter what the cost, it is worth it. hundred times worth it. And then, and then he ends this teaching with this enigmatic statement. 
But many who are first will be last, and the last first. We'll come back to that in a minute because he's going to repeat it. But here Matthew does something different than the other two writers, gospel writers, who tell this story of the rich young ruler, right? Um, He inserts a story in between the second teaching and the third one. Matthew inserts one, um, and it, it illumines the previous stories about children and about the rich young ruler. It's another story about grace. It's only in Matthew, and it's told by Jesus himself. And as you listen to it, we want to try to find, find who Jesus is in this story, who the Lord is, and who we are, and find our place in it. So here's the story that Jesus tells that Matthew inserts at this point. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, just a standard day's wage, he sent them out into his vineyard and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too and whatever's right, I'll give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why are you standing idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. That's a full day's wage. And now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius, the day's wage. So the story Jesus is telling is describing the economics of the kingdom of heaven, right? What life under the king of heaven is like. And the story, in the story, the master of the house evidently has a lot of work to do such that he hires workers first thing around 6 in the morning, then he hires more at 9, some more at noon, some more at 3 o'clock, and again at 5 o'clock, just an hour before the workday ends. And we would say that this master, he's the boss of the vineyard, right? He hires whom he wants, when he wants, and he pays them what he wants. And it's not up for negotiation as we're about to see. He's just, he, he pays them whatever is right, and as we'll see, he does that and more. He is crazy generous to his workers. He goes way beyond just whatever is right. He goes all the way to troublingly generous to some of his workers, especially to those who are in the greatest need, perhaps, still looking for work at the end of the day. So, As you figured out, probably, the master of the house is the Lord himself when Jesus tells this story. He is sovereign, he is just, and he is troublingly generous to his workers. But we got to find ourselves in it, and we'll pick ourselves out in the last little bit of the story, starting in verse 11. Now, on receiving their wages, those who had gone first and worked all day They grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? 
Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, who are we in the story? It's pretty easy. We're the day laborers. We're the guys looking for work. That's us. But then it gets a little harder. Which workers are we? And you can divide them into two groups. The firsts and the lasts. And this is a really important question. Are you among the firsts or the lasts? I think Jesus tells that story specifically so we can sort this out. And it might help if we relabeled what I'm calling the firsts as the deserving, the deserving ones. Uh, They're like the rich young man we just encountered, right? Someone who hoped he could earn his way to get into the kingdom because he'd been good enough. He'd done enough good stuff. He'd kept all those commandments Jesus listed. Firsts are those who think they can go toe-to-toe with God one day and come away measuring up, deserving to get in. Because our good deeds pile up way higher than our bad days. Way higher. And so we're good, okay? If anybody's good, we're good. We deserve to get into the kingdom. And once we're in, we deserve probably the best of rewards, better than those lasts, okay? That's for sure. So the firsts are the first to be picked. They work hard. They think they deserve better than others. They resent the master's generosity to the last. The rich young ruler, he would typify them perhaps. Are you among the firsts? Do you think that you deserve some of what God brings your way? And this is a vivid contrast with the lasts. We could call them the undeserving. And the last guys hired with one hour remaining in the day, right? They're way overpaid. They get paid for a full day's work. They work one hour. They're way overpaid, and they know it. And you have to wonder if, if why they were hired at the end of the day. Um, are, they, are they the worst workers? Are they the least skilled, the least able? Is that why they were still available? But they're overpaid, and the firsts know it, too. That's why when... When they got paid the same as the last, they grumbled at the master of the house. They resent someone less deserving than them getting what they, the firsts, have worked so very hard to deserve. And they become envious. They cannot rejoice and they even begrudge the master's generosity to someone less deserving than they. One writer said they remind him a lot of that older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He said, both are mad at goodness and boast of their own. So, are you a first? Is that your place in this story? Do you think you deserve what you get from God? Do you think you deserve maybe better than others? Do you resent others who deserve it less? but who get just as much, maybe even more than you. Are you a first? I hope not, because firsts get rebuked by the master, 
And they're told to just take their pay and leave. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if that means they're excluded from the kingdom or if they forfeit greater reward. Um, Jesus doesn't explain that part of the story. But it's clear. You don't want to be among the firsts, the people who think they deserve it. And this seems to be part of answering Peter's question back in verse 27 of chapter 19. We've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus has already told them, you're going to get a hundred times more than anything you sacrificed. And he's addressing the disciples as, as those who are amongst the lasts, <clears throat> the undeserving. They're going to get way more than they deserve. But this story is the second part of Jesus' answer to that question. Um, and it's aimed at those of us who are firsts. It is more of a warning than a comfort. Jesus is saying, beware of thinking you deserve it. Thinking you can be good enough. Thinking you deserve to be amongst the firsts. And so, Jesus closes a story with this same warning. So the last will be first and the first last. What do you think of that statement? It's kind of cryptic. Do you like it? Whether you like that statement or not depends totally on whether or not you think you're a first or a last. Okay. I love the way uh, Matt Woodley tells a story about his friend uh, who reacted to this story when he preached it. Uh, Matt is a uh, pastor. He had a friend, Ray, who was a recovering alcoholic, and he was utterly appalled by Jesus' parable in Matthew 20. And after, after he finished preaching on this text, he, he got the typical litany of nice sermon pastor until Ray used his massive body to block my exit from the church. Refusing to shake my hand, he bellowed, Are you kidding me? That's the dumbest story I've ever heard. Okay. You can't run the world according to Jesus. You can't treat people that way. Good people should get rewarded. Bad people Lazy latecomers and slackers should get punished. This story turns everything wrong side up. It isn't just dumb. It's messed up and downright dangerous. <laughs> Many who are first will be last and the last first. Do you like that statement? I, I don't think Ray did. Okay? Um, but it all depends on whether you see yourself as a first or a last, doesn't it? So this story is a comfort and a joy to those who are amongst the last, who know that they are undeserving of God's kindness. And it's a warning to the firsts who think that they deserve it. Okay, which are you? You want to be among the lasts. And you become a last. It's interesting, Dale Bruner says that the lasts became first by sheer grace not by work performed. The firsts became lasts because of a bloated self-consciousness, not from a failure to do good works. Lasts become first by grace, first become last by hubris, pride. So the key is that those who are last recognize their undeservedness and they're humbled by it before God. 
They have a great awareness of their need, of their own sin before a very, very holy God. That's why lasts know this one thing above all things. They know that Jesus went to Jerusalem and to the cross for them. He had to. They had no other hope. They're totally undeserving, without merit, without warrant. And so that's why in the very next verse after this story in Matthew and in, in Mark and Luke, right after the rich young ruler story, this is the third teaching that follows. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. See, Jesus, he foreknew, he's foretelling with remarkable detail his suffering when he gets to Jerusalem. He knew the shape of his suffering and who would inflict it and where it would happen. And he went anyway. See, this is the third story that makes sense out of the other two. It explains why the childlike get in and the rich young ruler cannot. This is how lasts become firsts, all of grace, all because Jesus went willingly to Jerusalem to be crucified. Dale Bruner says, lasts become firsts in this story, not because they've done enough good works, but because they have a good Lord, an incredibly good Lord who would even go and be crucified for them. This is the love of Christ for those who are last and stand in acknowledged need of a Savior, of those who acknowledge that they are undeserving and need grace. Matt Woodley again talks about another of his friends. This guy's name is George. And George was sharing his journey with Christ, sitting in a dingy church basement, confessing a sordid tale of sexual sin, after starting with pornography, he moved on to high-priced escort services, and then he hit bottom. His life unraveled. He lost his job. His family disowned him, and his wife was leaving him. But now, Matt writes, like the prodigal son, George had finally come to his senses. And when he finished this tale of filth and mercy, George asked to share a poem he had just discovered. And with hands shaking, he unraveled a scrap of paper and told us all, I've been carrying this all week, and it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. You guys have probably never heard this before, but it goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And that's how lasts become firsts. <clears throat> it's all of grace. It's all of Jesus. His crucifixion and resurrection is the only hope for anyone, first or last. And we dare not begrudge that to another. We dare not forget 
that this is what allows us to access the kingdom and know the king. But Jesus knew that we would begrudge that. And that's why he told us this story, all these stories, so that we would pass on the grace that we have received gladly. And that's why he gave us this table and told us never to forget, but to remember the one who went up to Jerusalem and to the cross for us, to bring amazing grace for lasts like us. And for firsts too. You don't have any friends who are successful firsts who don't need this hope, don't need this good news, this gospel. So in our telling, the story of the rich young ruler ends badly. Okay? The intervention fails. He went away sorrowful. But there are two things in this story that give me continued hope for him. One is that when the, when the disciples asked Jesus, how could this happen? Who can be saved? Jesus responds by saying, it's impossible with men, but with God, all things are possible. And then in Mark, when Mark tells this story before, Jesus asks him to give away his possessions and follow him. Jesus says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he asked him to give up his possessions and follow him. And, and I, have to, I have to hope that the love of Jesus is an even more powerful thing than the grip of greed on a young man's heart. And so now we get to come to this table, which is a table for lasts, just for lasts. For everybody who recognizes and freely admits our sin and our need for grace to help us in our time of need. And so at this table, we remember Jesus. We commune with Jesus. We remember and worship the one who went up to Jerusalem to the mocking and to the flogging and to the crucifixion so that lasts like us could be first. All by undeserved, costly, lavish grace. Would you bow with me in prayer and we'll, we'll remember Christ at the table together. Jesus, help us to hear your words and to heed them. Forgive us the foolishness of our thinking that we're first, that somehow we deserve the grace, the unmerited favor that comes to us. Sometimes because we're smart enough, we think we deserve it or because we're moral enough, or because we're successful enough. And none of that is true. So Jesus, focus, focus in the place of our treasures so that we might give them away and follow you. And in keeping with that, we remember that on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins, even the sins of lasts. Do this also in remembrance of me. 
The table at Northwake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus, who's walking in fellowship with him. If you are willing to trust Christ and lay aside your sin and come to this table seeking grace and help in your time of need, then the table is open for you as a follower of Christ. Let's come and remember the depth of the love of Christ for us.